Welcome to For the Church, a podcast for the Flock of Zion Presbyterian Church in Columbia, Tennessee. We want to help you think biblically about everyday matters. Zion Church exists to join Jesus in His mission to reach people with the gospel and then equip His people to worship and serve. I'm Paul Joyner, the senior pastor at Zion, and my regular conversation partner, John Kelly, is out today fighting a cold. Sounds a bit rough. So we have Keaton Paul with us today. Keaton is the head of the Bible department at our school, our interim youth director, and is pursuing ordination in the PCA. So we just had our national denominational meeting in St. Louis this year, and we're going to dedicate the next two podcasts to talking through the issues our denomination is facing. This may surprise some, but there is a lot of false information floating around social media about the PCA. It may surprise some that we are not considering ordaining homosexuals. As a denomination, I do not think we are becoming more progressive. Next week, we're going to talk about the actions of our General Assembly, the PCA's national meaning. But before, we think it might be helpful to talk about how our form of church government works before we talk about the actions of our General Assembly. This is for two reasons. One, most of the people at Zion don't come from Presbyterian form of church government. And two, it will be helpful to understand the actions of our General Assembly if we first understand how our church government works. Some of you may start with the second podcast on the issues and find yourself needing to circle back to this podcast. So let me start here. Presbyterianism is about church government and not doctrine. Doctrinally, we are Reformed. Our form of church government is Presbyterian. So, you can be Presbyterian in church government and not Reformed. This is the Cumberland Presbyterian Church in our area. You can be Reformed and not Presbyterian, and there are a number of good, independent, Reformed churches in the world and throughout church history. In short, Presbyterian form of church government is formed around three principles. One, churches are to be elder-led. Secondly, churches are connected to each other formally. And third, there is accountability upwards through graded church courts. Our highest church court is the General Assembly. Below that, the Presbyterian. Below that, the local church. So, Keaton, you and I weren't raised in Presbyterian churches. In my case, the Lord used RUF, the PCA's campus ministry, to bring me to faith in Christ, but then I returned back to the church um, that I had grown up with for a couple of years. But in both of our cases, we are Presbyterian by conviction. We have had to leave behind a number of things because we were convinced that Presbyterianism was the most biblical expression of church government. So, Keaton, let's start here. You grew up in an independent congregational form of church government. What do you see as the biblical basis for the Presbyterian form of church government? So, in uh, Scripture, we see a, a number of different good, biblical, sound reasonings for Presbyterian church government. Probably the the single most stated text for um, Presbyterian church government is Acts 15, where, as 
my church polity professor calls it the first general assembly, um, where all the different pastors and elders throughout the region and the world come together in order to to really discuss, in particular, uh, the nature of the Jew and Gentile relation and the issue of circumcision. So here we have a large group of pastors of local congregations in various regions coming together um, to discuss issues of the church. Uh, and so that seems to be a pretty clear indication of uh, Presbyterian church government um, as well. And then we also see other places like uh, many of Paul's letters in his introduction. He'll take Galatians, for instance. He'll talk about the churches in Galatia. It seems as though he's referring to a region filled with a number of different churches together as um, a presbytery of the region of Galatia. And so we see that uh, in, in Scripture as well. Um, and Paul, even some of the mandates for um, biblical eldership seems to imply that each elder is accountable to each other. So there's not a hierarchy, as it were, of, um, of bishops overseeing elders, overseeing the congregations, and taking Rome, for instance, even the Pope over all the other bishops. Um, it seems as though that Scripture teaches quite clearly that um, there are two offices of the church, elder and deacon, and elders in leading the church of uh, worship and sacrament are um, not overseen by anyone aside from Christ himself and are accountable to one another for the good of Christ's church. And that seems to be the biblical mandate for what the church is supposed to do as far as our form of church government is um, to be taken. And uh, what do you think are having come from a congregational form of church government um, into Presbyterianism? What, what do you see are some of the practical benefits? So one thing that I experienced firsthand, ministry is one of the loneliest places in the world. Um, and it's far more lonely when you are an independent congregation um, on your own. You don't have anybody to appeal to. You don't have brothers who build you up. Um, and so there's just a hugely practical benefit for pastors to have brothers who they are accountable to, um, who are there with them, who all are um, moving in a, a distinct direction as this corporate body of Christ. So that's one thing. It breaks down that wall, but even as as a, a group of churches together, there's a, a corporateness uh, that reflects greatly the body of Christ. Um, th this distinction uh, of having you know local churches are a wonderful thing, but if you are a local church, oftentimes the mindset becomes that we're the only the faithful group that's in this region, or um, we are much like Elijah, all the others are gone, and it's just us here remaining. Uh, the Presbyterian form of church government really buffers against this mentality of seeking to see ourselves in isolation, uh, away from the rest of uh, the world and Christ's church, so that we can even look to, to other congregations uh, across the country, across the world, and say, 
These are my brothers and sisters who are walking with me arm in arm and carrying on Christ's mission for his church to the nations, and we're doing this together um, in a corporate manner. That's another wonderful practical benefit, but also in a in our day and age where there are there's so many scandals. Um, the the church is filled, and um, news media are constantly talking about issues within the church of um, financial issues, of um, pastoral scandals, of all of these different things that occur within the church. Um, most, a lot of the time, these churches are um, independent churches and and don't have a system of accountability going on within the church. Uh, the Presbyterian form of church government is all about accountability. Um, while scandals do occur within Presbyterian churches and in Presbyterian forms of government, we have a system uh, that protects us and guards us um, against these scandals and hold us accountable and um, do so for the good of Christ's church. I think that, that last point so good. I was <clears throat> I was thinking about this at the gym the other day, which is where I do most of my thinking and get the most clarity um, in the world. Uh, so if you see me at the gym, it's because I'm trying to think through an issue. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I was thinking about, uh, I was listening to a podcast on the rise and fall of Mars Hill Church with Mark Driscoll yeah. um, and how um, Driscoll had created a very toxic environment mm-hmm. there um, inward. Outwardly, it looked great, and he was being celebrated, but it created very toxic. And, and they were sort of rehearsing a number of um, churches where that were independent – and built on the local celebrity pastor, Willow Creek, mm-hmm. um, James McDonald, also yeah. in Chicago, Mark Driscoll. Uh, you just go down this list of um, guys who were allowed without much accountability to create um, churches that were incredibly toxic on the inside um, and, and really built themselves, built a culture based on um, unchecked narcissism, mm-hmm. and it 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 reminded me of a situation in the PCA where we had a church where a pastor had created that kind of culture too. Mm-hmm. He was he was brought up on charges. The presbytery heard his confession, deposed him from office, wow. and said, "This isn't acceptable for a." For a pastor of a local church to treat people in the kind of abusive, power-hungry ways that mm-hmm. you're treating, Mars Hill does not exist today. Right. Um, Will Creek had all of their staff resign and is struggling, but this church, um, because the presbytery was holding a man accountable to the Word of God and the heart of the Lord Jesus, um, is doing much better today. But also that sort of uh, connectionalism allowed for um, them to reach out for help Mm. when this stuff was going on. So it doesn't just hold them accountable, but when that local church needed help, they had a vast denomination to reach out for and get someone to come in and be the interim, have the presbytery help them. Even in our own local church at times, we've had 
the ability to reach out past ourselves and say, we're trying to think through and need some help and maybe some some outside engagement on some things. Mm -hmm. And so would you be willing to come in and and help us work through some issues? And so this sort of the connectional Mm -hmm. cooperation, you're not on your own upward accountability um, where, you know, a local pastor isn't able very easily to go off the rails doctrinally, a local church is enabled. It creates an in, in my opinion, an incredible amount of stability mm. in a world where things, you know, rise and fall very quickly, mm-hmm. and the, where there isn't a lot of stability, the Presbyterian form of church government creates a lot of stability because of our shared connections with each other. That we, you know, um, but also our our upward accountability through church courts. Um, creates a, an incredible amount of stability um, in a world where there there isn't a lot of um, stability, and I think I think some of this too is a little bit foreign to people in America because mm. um, yeah. we really have a low view of the church. Where we are very individualistic oriented, and that is generally true, but it also sneaks into the church you know it's not like when you come to faith in christ you automatically you know lose all the things that the ways the world shaped you i mean part of walking with jesus is that he's reshaping you um and you may be part of his kingdom but the kingdom of the world is still um in our hearts in the way of doing things and i think one of the ways that expresses itself in america is that the church is this thing that we come to um, to receive a product from, mm. but really isn't um, doesn't function in most of our thinking as the embodiment of Jesus on the world, as um, the place where His power and authority is exerted over people. Um, and I'm and so we hear things like Paul says in. In Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, we ask or think, according to the power that is at work in us, to him be glory. Um, and and we're like, man, I'm, I'm so on board. That's, that's wonderful. Um, but then Paul goes on, to him be glory in the church mm. and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. I think the f- second part of that probably makes more sense to us than the first, that God's mm-hmm. going to be glorified. You know, His power is exerted and in, in His glory is seen in Christ Jesus um, in the in His incarnation, death, and resurrection, um, and, and reign. Look, look what God has done. But then also to say, to put side by side with each other, to Him be glory in the church yeah. and in Christ Jesus. That, that first part is... I don't think it rubs us wrong. I think it's just such a foreign concept that it can't start rubbing us wrong mm. until we start to get it. And even our confession of faith says, um, you know, that salvation is normally um, within the church. Right? It's, it's abnormally that someone comes to faith in Christ apart from the ministry mm. of the church, that the ministry of God, His oracles, His His word, His ordinances, the sacraments are given to the church. Um, to to carry these things out, and so I think when we start talking about you know church authority, mm. stability, the way church government works, this is 
for a lot, I think, a lot of our people isn't that important of a subject because no. the church isn't that important of a of an institution. But as, as you've heard me say a number of times from the pulpit, it is the only institution right. that will make it into the new heavens and new earth. Absolutely. And to that note, ecclesiology, which is what we're talking about, an aspect of ecclesiology now, the study of the church, it is not really one of those doctrines that people get really excited about, unfortunately. And we've talked about the importance of ecclesiology before, but, and this is a little bit um, maybe tangential, but um, how or do you, maybe to begin with, do you think a robust ecclesiology is vital for a church in a post-Christian age? Oh man, that's a great question, and I, I do. Um, I think, I think, um, well, we could do a long discussion on the nature and the need of healthy institutions um, in the post-Christian world, um, as you know, we are moving into a world where it's more costly to be a Christian and, and much more difficult. A healthy institution is is necessary. Um, for spiritual formation and and stability and and I often say, you know, I think one of the things that I love about Zion is that it is an over two hundred year old church, mm-hmm. which just doesn't happen a lot in America. Right. Um, but it's a two hundred year old church um, that is still spiritually vibrant and healthy um, because the Lord has sustained her, um, and that should give us just a sense that he's a God who keeps his promises, that he works over a long period of time. I'll often walk out to our cemetery that sits around our church building um, when I'm either discouraged um, or beginning to think too highly of myself, which sometimes can occur within the two-hour span of time. Um, just to remind myself that that um, this church is, as is any church, is built on um, the foundation of God's word and kept alive by His Spirit, um, and not by anything that I may say, do, or bring to the table. Um, and so, I think, uh, yes, I think in a post-Christian world, that kind of stability and health mm. um, is is of utter essential nature, but also, and and this is getting maybe back into the General Assembly type of thing, is that, you know, um, in a post-Christian world, you know, when the church is on mission for Jesus, it will always raise questions that are difficult to answer. And that's what happens in Acts 15 Mm. at the first General Assembly, um, is that you had the gospel going out to the Gentiles, Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. Um, and that raises a number of issues. It raised an issue in Acts 6 that the Greek widows were being overlooked. And so you have some ethnic tension going on that had to be settled by the apostles and by the local church who chose from amongst themselves wise men to tend to the tables. You know, the first itineration of um, elder of of deacons. But then again, it shows up in Acts chapter 15 where the gospel has gone out um, to the Gentiles, and they're just having to answer some tough questions that are both theological in nature, but missional in nature too, um, because these things are seldom separated. Um, and it, you know, and then so what they do is they send 
um, apostles and elders. This is Acts 15, 6. They're gathered together to consider this matter. Um, and then this might be my favorite um, verse for General Assembly, um, verse 7 of Acts uh, 15. And after there had been much debate, <laughs> Peter stood up and said to them, and he begins to make a theological argument that is also missional in quality. Um, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by mouth of the Gentiles should hear the word of God and believe, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them and us, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers should be able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. So they're fighting for the centrality. Peter's fighting for the centrality of the gospel. He's fighting to keep the church on mission. Um, and as seldom happens at our General Assembly, verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent. That does not happen. Um and uh, and then and then Paul and Barnabas um, stand up and and give testimony and also make an argument um, from the scriptures, um, and and then James um, also makes an argument um, and James being the wise and stable one sort of uh, wins the day uh, with his argument um, and. Um, and he, he makes this point, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. From, from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is to be read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Right? And so, so the question of how are Gentiles supposed to, uh, are they supposed to keep the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament in order to be followers of Jesus? Um, what are the requirements for a Gentile who comes to faith in Christ? Um, and, um, and they decide the issue, right? They decide, look, uh, it's not the the ceremonial law that needs to be kept of ancient Israel, but it is a good thing. We need to instruct them, and so they decide, these are the things that we're going to say. Um, keep yourselves from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and what's been blood. Some of that's clear direction from the scriptures, um, sexual immorality, keep yourself from sexual immorality. Some of it is just, hey, this is what it looks like to um, seek peace in the church. So you should keep yourself things from strangled by blood because that's going to be a stumbling block for your Jewish brother. So why don't you keep yourselves from that, right? And so they're they're applying the scriptures in such a way um, that they come to a conclusion, and then right, this is where church authority comes in. So an issue from mission arises. They debate the issue um, and come to a conclusion, and that's but that's not the end of the story. Verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And then they send this letter, and the letter reads this The brothers, both the apostles, uh, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us, troubled with words, unsettling our minds. 
uh, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, they, and then they send their decision back in the form of a letter to the local churches that had um, sent these delegates to Jerusalem to debate these issues. Um, and uh, the assumption is that what was decided by this group of delegates from the churches is now to be binding on the churches. And so mm. it's not just instruction. It's not just pious advice that's mm. sent down, but binding instruction. This is how um, this matter has been settled, and you should listen to this and form your church mm. around these instructions. Yeah. Hey, and so that's... Good. That's, I think, you know, uh, a model of um, not just debating issues, which is good, but the church actually exercising authority on those local churches, a, a higher church court exercising authority on the local church, the lower church courts, the local church around it, and, and holding them to that. Very good. So we've expounded the scriptures. Now then... Let's bring it forward just a little bit. What exactly is General Assembly as we see it today, uh, specifically in the PCA? Why do we think especially denominations as a PCA General Assembly? Why is that important for us today? Um, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, uh, there again, there are probably two issues. One is authority and one is mission. Right? Um, for mission, you have cooperation. Um, together, we're able to to carry out a national denomination is able to carry out a great deal of uh, of ministry pool resources for the sake of the mission of Jesus, um, and um, I think that's one of the benefits of denominations. Um, and I'll, I'll at this point need to probably make a distinction between denominations and denominationalism. Mm. Um, I think denominationalism, the way I think about it, is that's it's it's probably more in to tribalism. Mm. This mm. is you know the PCA is my tribe, or I'm a Southern Baptist, and in these neck of the woods, you know, like I often invite people who aren't Christians um, to come to Zion, and they're like, "Well, you're a Presbyterian." Um, I'm a Church of Christ, and I'm like, actually, you're you're not. You're not anything. You're not mm. following Jesus. Your mm. faith isn't in Him. But what they're hearing is your denomination is not my denomination. What they really mean is your tribe's not my tribe. Yeah. I can't switch tribes. I got to stay within my tribe. And I think it's easy um, for um, to rise in any of our hearts that kind of tribalism when it comes to denominationalism. So um, I'd. I probably want to distance myself from that, um, or even want to distance our church from that. But you can easily overreact and distance yourself from from denominations. And that is always an unhealthy thing um, because um, even um, even um, even denominations that say they're not denominations act like denominations. Um, yes. and so. Um, it's just sort of hard to get away from cooperation and mission um, and in cooperation with authority. And the churches that that recognize that it's hard to get away from that and build themselves accordingly probably are, do things a lot better. And so I think you have cooperation and mission, and, and we have um, – we're able as a denomination to pool a lot of resources, um, particularly when it comes to 
worldwide missions uh, with our missions organization, um, pull a lot of resources when it comes to campus ministry with Reformed University Fellowship, um, to church planning and church revitalization when it comes to mission to North America, as well as some other things. So the mission probably moves forward in a more healthy way um, with um, with a denominational structure, but then also the mutual accountability um, is biblical and therefore healthy. And so... Um, and let me just give you some things that I, I was encouraged by um, with our denominational gathering with General Assembly. Um, as a denomination, we're still growing. Um, since our inception in the early 70s, we have continued a pretty steady track of growth over the years. We're, we're still relatively small um, in the United States, um, but we have over 330,000 members. Um, in the last uh, two years, we've planted over 50 churches. Um, the sad part about that number, which is a really encouraging thing, is we're continuing to be a church planting church. That's who, as a denomination, we've been committed to church planting. The sad thing is that uh, um, that only about 1% of our total churches are, are actively church planting um, right now, um, which tells me that's, that's progress. We're still planting churches, but we need to pick up the pace. Um, and again, in a post-Christian world, a high view of the church, we should be planting churches a lot more aggressively than we are. Um, I continue to think that the PCA is an incredible place to do ministry. I am impressed by how theologically uh, robust we are. Uh, most issues we think through theologically, um, we have a doctrinal standard. Um, that it doesn't just function as sort of uh, something we put in the closet, but something that we are trying, we are so committed to that we're trying to think out of to world um, issues, to the issues of the world around us, the issues of the culture around us, and the mission of the church. Um, we're big enough um, as a denomination, we're a big enough tent that we sharpen each other. Uh, much of General Assembly is dedicated to, like Acts 15, much debate. Um, and we have um, a fairly small spectrum within the PCA. Um, and we, um, in the broad evangelical world, um, we are to the right of almost everybody. Um, theologically, um, we have and, and we have a, a doctrinal standard that is robust um, and uh, and helps us. Um, but also, I think it, the other thing that that encourages me is that we do what Acts 15 does: is we are committed to the mission of Jesus and to thinking theologically about the mission of Jesus. Um, and um, but I think also there there's some concerns um, that I, I walked away with um, at at times. Um, I think the PCA reflects the extremes um, of polarization in the broader culture. Um, but I also left like thinking in the broader culture, this is true as well, that the extreme voices don't reflect the majority. The loudest voices are always on the extreme. Um, and so if you've been on social media, you're probably mm -hmm. exposed more to the extreme voices than to the majority of the PCA. And that's true in the broader culture um, as well. Um you know, and I was and I was reminded again that whenever we are reactionary, we we fail, and that's part of I think the strength of a strong denomination is it it keeps us from being from swinging to the extremes uh, very quickly. 
Um, and it, it keeps sort of the polarization from from drawing us to one of the two ditches. You know, we can either ditch one is to react to the culture um, and ditch two is react to those who are reacting to the culture. Mm. Um, you want to avoid both those ditches. Um, and I think that one of the strengths of the PCA, it's both its size um, that we are, you know, a big tent for the Reformed and Presbyterians um, is not just that we um, – all the voices um, can be present there, um, and and I also walked away thinking that the only way forward is is not to be reactionary either to those who are reacting to the culture, or to those who are reacting against those reacting to the culture. That that really the only way forward at any time in any place is to let the scriptures shape us, and to figure out how to speak those truths about Jesus to a culture that needs Him. We we just can't be debating issues. We really have to. The part of debating issues is to maintain our integrity to the scriptures, because the scriptures speak uh, words of life to a world that's dying. It speaks the truth of Jesus to a world that desperately needs um, the truth of Jesus. Um, at times, that will put us against the world, um, but. You know, we can't treat Jesus' word. I've said this a lot this week. We can't treat Jesus and his word um, like uh, like it's the crazy uncle at Thanksgiving dinner mm-hmm. that we have to apologize for. Um, you know, <laughs> right. you, it's like you bring your girlfriend to thanks, family Thanksgiving dinner, um, and you're like, well, I got to tell you about my crazy uncle. He's a little bit weird. And I think we treat, sometimes we treat some of the most beautiful parts of the ways of Jesus that way um, sexuality. Um, his claims to truth, um, his you know commands to take up a cross and follow him. We we sort of treat some of those things uh, like he's the, like those are those those teachings are the crazy uncle that we right. have to apologize for mm-hmm. instead of instead of the some of the most beautiful things about Jesus um, and his path. And so um, you know Jesus and his ways are the most beautiful, even if the world thinks he's ugly. Um, and so part of our job is to convince the world that Jesus and his ways are are the most beautiful, life-giving um, path that they can fall on, even when they're upside down. And as we are moving post-Christian as a culture, Jesus and his ways are going to look to the world like the crazy uncle at Thanksgiving mm. dinner. And and part of our job is saying, oh, you need to listen. He's not crazy. He's the wisest man in the room. Um, he just sounds crazy to you because mm. um, you might be you think very differently than he does. But if you listen long enough, he's going to set you on a path that leads to life and life eternal, and he'll do things for you that you couldn't imagine anybody could ever do for you. Um, and so I think, you know, that is, that's why we have to not um, be reacting to the culture or reacting to those who are reacting to the culture, because we're going to lose that voice. Mm. Um, and so part of what I love about the PCA is we combine theologically robust discussion with carrying out the mission of Jesus, just like Acts 15 does. Absolutely. And uh, thinking through that too, you know, there's, there's a fairly distinct um, place that the PCA fits denominationally, as you were saying, steering clear of those two ditches that are, so often at play, those who are reacting against the culture, which many would kind of term uh, as g- generic fundamentalism of what are we, our, our positions are regularly marked um, 
not so much thinking theologically, using um, biblical understandings and biblical concepts for certain things within culture, but specifically, we are anti this. Mm. Um, and our church polity and our standards and the things that are authoritatively binding for the PCA greatly guard us against that. But also, you know, and this is probably, I don't think most people around here are nearly as worried about that as perhaps we should be. Mm -hmm. Um, But fundamentalism can be a very ugly thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think what's on most people's minds are are thinking a lot uh, about the other end of the spectrum of of Protestant liberalism of the, the previous generations or what many are calling today um, the progressive church, and I'm sure you'll get into that more. But I think we are in a uh, quite the 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 sweet spot of being right down the middle of the road and being protected by these two ditches because of the way that we're set up as a denomination. That's absolutely vital. So now, then, kind of thinking through you know, Acts 15, General Assembly, the big question becomes: How do you have a debate with over 2,000 people in a room? Yeah, we had. That's a good question. We had our largest uh, General Assembly this year with. Right around 2,200 uh, commissioners. A commissioner is um, any teaching elder, any pastor in the PCA, um, and then local churches, depending on their size, can send a number of ruling elders um, to act as commissioners. And And we had um, the largest general assembly. We've had over 2,200 people um, in the room. And we are, as we'll talk about next week, um, we are discussing some very difficult and complex matters um, like how um, the what is the nature of sexual desire? Um, how do same sex? What do we need to do to minister both minister to same sex um, attracted individuals and um, help them find a place in the church, um, but also speak clearly about um, the nature of sanctification. Um, in the Christian life when it comes to sexual desires and same-sex attraction. Those are difficult issues, um, and you, you know you, you definitely could see um, the sides um, rising up in both those, the fundamentalist side and the progressive side um, rising up. But I'd, again, I was encouraged, and we'll talk next week through some of those issues um, a lot more, but... Um, it you know it creates uh, a great deal of debate, and one thing that I have learned through church history is conflict always brings clarity. Mm. Um, mm. It always has, it always will. The, the church, some of the most precious <laughs> teachings of about the Lord Jesus and His work have come through centuries of conflict mm-hmm. um, because it's brought a great deal of clarity. So conflict always brings clarity. So. The way General Assembly works is that we <laughs> – so how do you have a debate? It's one thing to have a debate with you know a handful of apostles and elders um, in the room. It's another thing to put 2,200 hmm. um, people in the room and, and have a debate. We have a lot of rules. Um, some of those rules we might take a little too seriously because <laughs> um, if there is a banner that hangs over – 
Presbyterianism. It's Paul's um, instructions in 1 Corinthians 14 yes. to worship, to do everything decently and in order. Um, we apply that to just about everything that we could apply it to, um, and ta- oftentimes taken out of its original context <laughs> about speaking in tongues and, and worship. Um, but uh, it is very decently and in order, um, and uh, so we have a lot of rules. But the rules, uh, and this is part of the beauty of, I think, what we do, the rules really are there to protect the minority um, and a minority voice. Um, and by the more minority, I mean those who might think different than mm. the room. Um, and and so, uh, you know, you don't because you don't want those with rhetorical skills um, simply to dominate the discussion um, and because they could be wrong about the issues. Um, nor do you want the majority um, to, to dominate because the majority can be wrong too. Um, and so part of our rules are both to limit discussion um, to certain periods of time um, and also to make sure that everyone's voice who wants to speak to an issue can speak to it. Mm. And so that the majority, who could be wrong, doesn't quiet the minority, doesn't shut them up by, by simply using power. And I, I generally, I think it works really well. But we have a lot of debate, and sometimes as this General Assembly, we tried to save time um, by offering uh, a way forward to save us some time, uh, a few minutes, but we spent 40 minutes debating whether <laughs> it was in order for us to save time or not. Um, and so in a typical... Presbyterian way, we wasted more time debating how to save time um, than we would if we would have just gone forward with the regular way of doing things. I think if you come to General Assembly or you watch it for the first time, the rules can be very, for discussion, can be very overwhelming and you can get lost very quickly. But the rules really are there to protect and provide a means for um, us to um, moderate each other um, and bring forward the scriptures um, in a in an orderly way, um, and to keep uh, keep rhetoric or power plays from simply getting the the will of um, whoever is best organized. Um, some might tell you that didn't happen at this general assembly. In my opinion, it did. Um, we came out with a lot of straight down the line decisions. We'll talk a little bit about what those next week. Some of them I weren't. I, you know, as I'll say next week, I, I think needs some more work. Um, but generally, um, generally it works. Um, General Assembly, very tedious, um, very exhausting mentally. Um, but we're doing the work of the church, which is always worth the exhaustion. Absolutely. So, with thinking through debate, and I mean, um, there were many things debated. And have been, and a word that floated around, especially at the 2019 General Assembly, and it's probably floating around now on um, social media, is the term that is talked about regularly from PCA's General Assembly, uh, and that's the the term overture. So really, let's back up a little bit. How does an issue come to the General Assembly for debate? So typically, uh, there are probably two mechanisms that things come to the General Assembly. Um, one is what we call overtures. An overture is when a local church session or a presbytery asks the General Assembly to act on something. 
or overturing the General Assembly to act on a particular matter. And the General Assembly can either approve or deny or even amend that request. Um, and so most of our debate is around um, a certain number of overtures. We had almost 50 overtures because we did not meet last year. We had almost 50 overtures um, come forward um, from different presbyteries um, this year. Um, and uh, we had 47 overtures come forward from General Assembly. And again, uh, we can either approve those, uh, deny those, or amend those. Um, and so most of the debate will center around um, the overtures. Very good. Uh, and, let me, and let me maybe give you an example of that. Um, there, um, you know, so... We talked about qualif- there were there were probably three really big issues um, that came up this year. One is the requirements for an officer um, who uh, struggles with uh, who's who's struggling against um, same sex attraction desires. Those there were a number of overtures sort of gathered around that issue. Um, and we'll talk through those next week as well as a report on sexuality um, that the denomination put together a study committee report. Um, but then also one of the big issues, um, and I think this is a, a good, maybe a good example of how things work at the General Assembly level, um, was um, there was a number of overtures about what we call line authority in our missions organization, Mission to the World. Um, and, uh, and so... Um, you know, MTW, Mission to the World, um, really has two different structures, two different ministries um, under it. One is church planting, and uh, and one is what I'll just call kingdom ministries. And those kingdom ministries are, are meant to adorn the gospel, um, but they're not local churches. So think orphanages or ministry to the poor or medical missions or AIDS relief and AIDS clinics. Um, those type of things, which aren't local church ministries, but adorn the work of the local church um, as as kingdom ministries. Um, and so one of the questions that came up, uh, one of the concerns that a lot of churches and presbyteries, including myself, had is um, if you have um, within MTW, if you have unordained men or women um, overseeing an ordained person, um, planting a church that seems to go against the biblical mm. teaching on ecclesial authority, um, that the elders are to be um, ruling over, um, overseeing um, um, the work of elders. And so, and throughout the history of world missions, this is just organizing, how does the church organize um, as it's carrying out missions has always been difficult. And so, a number of presbyteries um, asked General Assembly to clear up this issue. Um, and the way they wanted it cleared up was to say that in local church planting, local church plants, that anyone with line authority over a church planter must be an elder. Mm. And mm-hmm. so we debated that, the mm-hmm. complexities of that, why that's necessary, um, how difficult it is to carry that out on the seas, the um, whether General Assembly can instruct MTW at that granular of a level, which, in my opinion, is not a granular level. Um, but knowing a number of um, 
of MTW missionaries and hearing from them. It's a very difficult thing. It's going to require them to do a lot of reordering. And But the Presbyteries had a concern about this. Um, they'd heard from other MTW missionaries that this was a concern, that you had non-ordained men and women overseeing the work of local church plants. Um, and that then began a debate about what kind of authority do these people have? Do they have ecclesial or church authority? Are they, or are they just simply um, administrative authority? Um, and so we kind of had to debate all of that and talk through all of that. These are not easy, there are not easy answers to these questions, which is why you ask a group to debate the issues and why you have rules for debate. And, and what we had decided was um, that elders are to rule the local churches, and so we essentially directed MTW that elders must oversee other elders who are in local church ministry, um, and that's going to put a burden on MTW that it will be difficult to be to carry out. I thought it was good. I agree with it. I voted for it. Um, but also, you know, because I have um, a number of people I highly respect within MTW um, that thought differently, I, I'm aware of um, what it, the extra burden it will put on them. But um, I think it is more in line with the scriptures. So that's that's an example of how an issue is raised, brought to the general assembly level. What we do with that, um, we've debated probably for over an hour on this one issue. Um, and then, you know, it's sent back to MTW, and they have to carry out the will of General Assembly on this. Um, we'll talk next week about um, some changes to our Book of Church order that we debated. That that gets carried out a little bit differently. Then there's another way in our um, that, that things come before our General Assembly, and that's through what we call the Review of Presbytery Records which I think is a good illustration of how our mutual accountability works um, because within the PCA, accountability is is upward. Um, higher courts hold lower courts accountable, um, and so presbyteries hold local churches accountable. The General Assembly holds the presbyteries accountable. The presbyteries a regional church body. Um, General Assembly is the national church body. Um, and one of the ways we do that is we review the records. You know, the Presbytery will review the minutes of a local church and say, you know, y- y'all did this thing. You shouldn't have done this thing. That's not in line with either the scriptures or our agreed upon form of church government. You shouldn't have done those things. And so we're going to hold you accountable. You either have to convince us that we're wrong or you have to correct that. And uh, one of the big issues that came up for us through the review of presbytery records was whether a presbytery can hold a man accountable uh, for uh, teaching um, things that differ with our doctrinal standards. Um, and uh, and that came up, one of the presbyteries had told the man, uh, we, we will allow you to take an exception to our doctrinal standards here, um, so they granted that exception, but they said, you can't teach that exception. You must teach our doctrinal standards. This becomes a greater debate over church authority and um, and the nature of presbyteries to act as a shepherding body over the local churches and as shepherds of God, um, whether they can say, we, we do have a responsibility, just like in a local church, the elders have a responsibility for what's taught in Sunday school classes other ministries from the pulpit, does the presbytery have a responsibility 
um, for what is taught within its churches and by its pastors who are its members. Um, and uh, that one of the Presbyteries had said, told a man, you can't, you will grant you an exception to the standards, but you can't teach it in our local churches. And so then we had a debate um, about whether that was allowable or not. The way that came to us is by uh, looking over, taking seriously our responsibility to oversee what uh, presbyteries do and hold them accountable to be faithful to the scriptures um, and to our book of church order. And so we debated that for a long time. Um, and uh, we decided that a presbytery does have that right um, and that a church court is responsible for the teaching that happens um, in its bounds. So in this case, a presbytery is responsible for the teaching that happens within local churches. Um, and so those are the two ways even uh, things get really get debated on the floor, either by overtures or by the review um, of presbytery records. So we've seen the the ways in which things are debated. Now then, maybe we can kind of finish off by thinking through and talking about just briefly what were some of the hot button topics of of the debates that were received the most debate on the floor of presbytery this year? Uh, General Assembly. Gen- General Assembly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, again, I think uh, the there were probably were f- those four issues. Um, you know, what does authority look like on the mission field um, with MTW over local churches? That was one. Um, um, two, does a presbytery have the ability to restrict what's taught within its bounds? And you can see that these are very similar questions, which is what is the nature of the church? How has Jesus established it? And what authority has he entrusted to it? Um, and how does that get exercised? Those are complex issues that have no clear and obvious answers and and need to be talked through, um, and conflict brings clarity. Um, And then the last set of issues really were around um, sexuality, sexual desire, um, the nature of putting sin to death and walking with Jesus, um, and then how do you apply that to... um, teaching elders or ruling elders or deacons who are faithfully wrestling with their same-sex attraction um, and walking with Jesus um, in those things. Those are, that's, you know, not, that's not an easy thing to answer, mm-hmm. um, but it's worth it, um, and we'll talk through that um, last time. Um, so the, the, what really came up in that was what are the qualifications for officers who are fighting against the sin of same-sex attraction? Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that fighting against that sin is is uh, a key part of this because, uh, w- again, what we weren't debating was whether we allow um, homosexuals to be um, pastors, uh, ruling elders or deacons. That's not what the debate was about. Mm. Um, that debate, and again, this is a very complex thing that's worth, um, it's probably on the radar of most people, um, and um, be, largely because of social media and blogs, um, a lot of misinformation out there. But the the real debate was um, about what what is our identity in Christ, what are the benefits that flow from him, and if men are faithfully fighting against their sexual desires when it comes to same-sex attraction, um, are they 
um, ordainable uh, within the PCA. Um, and we'll talk about um, those overtures. We had a number of overtures that, that sort of clustered around that, and we'll talk about about those um, the next time. So you got any closing comments or thoughts? No. I, I, it, it's encouraging, one, to think through you know, the church and the nature of it, but it's also encouraging to see uh, that our brothers do deeply care for Christ's church and um, that the Lord is... Um, bringing brothers together, shepherds together to build up Christ's church. And that, that takes place sometimes in debate, um, but we are thankful that the Lord has given his, his, um, his people wisdom and prudence to, to carry these things out, that um, his bride, the church, would be ordained uh, and uh, ornately dressed and um, preserved and faithful. And so there's a lot of uh, reason to be very encouraged by General Assembly and um, the, f- the fact that we are Presbyterian. I, uh, I'm, I am very thankful not to be in an independent church. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very thankful to be connected to brothers. I, I talked to, and I'll, I'll close with this, I, I have a number of friends um, who are in independent churches congregational model churches and they often speak of their loneliness mm-hmm. in ministry in ways that make me very thankful that I'm part of a connectional denomination yeah. um, because a good part of uh, general assembly happens a good part of it happens when we're not debating things on the floor mm. um, or we're catching up with people um, when we're sharing struggles and ideas together, um, when we're connecting as brothers, um, the PCA tends not to be a lonely place to do ministry because of our connection as connectionalism. Um, but also when we are debating things on the floor, um, you you begin to realize that even in the midst of our debate, we are operating often f- from within the same camp. Um, um, and we share doctrinal commitments with each other um, that is beautiful um, and encouraging. And, and you know, even I, I laugh sometimes when we begin to talk about the progressives in the PCA mm. and the conservatives within mm-hmm. the PCA and the moderates within the PCA. And, and then you look around the, the broader church in the United States and think of oh, the progressives uh, within the PCA are still incredibly conservative, yes. reformed, um, and you know committed to the scriptures. And the the progressives, um, the progressive church in the United States would look look at us and just laugh. Yes, um, that you guys call them progressives, um, and that's I think a commitment to the stability of our churches, but also that we really are together in this. Mm-hmm. Um, our spectrum is narrow. Um, because we are committed to the same doctrinal standards. And so you have sort of, you know, loneliness is not um, as prevalent, I think, in the local churches because we're connected to each other and on mission together. Mm. Um, But also um, amongst the pastors, we have a a fairly good support structure. So I'm very thankful to be in the PCA. I'm thankful for the health of the PCA, and I'm very thankful – um, for our attempts to carry out a biblical church government um, in the form of Presbyterianism. 
Well, you've been listening to For the Church, a conversation with Paul Joyner and today Keaton Paul. If you have ideas for future episodes, please send us an email or a message. Grab one of us. You can find out more about Zion Church at zioncolumbia.org. And please visit us on Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m.